Hey everyone, welcome to TaxCast with Chelsea, where I give you a small dose of interest in tax news as well as answer commonly asked tax questions. Today I'm going to review these three topics. Are you wanting to take your LLC partnership to be an S-corporation? Then let's review some of the items you should consider before filing that S-corp election. Also, Biden selects Daniel Werfel to lead the IRS. How the next five years of his or any commissioner's leadership will transform our relationship with the IRS and hopefully for the better. Lastly, why Social Security reform should be a priority in the next congressional session and should be a great bipartisan achievement to funding solvency. With the end of the year getting closer, I've had quite a few clients want to explore some ways to save on taxes, namely take their partnership to BNS Corporation where they can save money on Social Security and Medicare taxes. But before making that election, there should be some other factors that are considered besides the tax savings, namely how the partnership agreement is currently structured and what that transition would mean to the members. So here are a few points to consider. What is fair? This question comes up in almost every conversation. And while I understand the the good intentions of trying to define fair, it's obviously relative and should be stated in already existing partnership agreement. Don't rely on boilerplate language from LegalZoom or other free sites. Go ahead and invest in a business attorney who will ask you the questions about the partnership and draft the agreement accordingly. They will also probe more into understanding about your business venture. A strong partnership agreement not only protects its members, but clearly directs your tax advisor in helping you navigate decisions. Just like in any relationship, getting married is fun and exciting, but the reality is sometimes your interests and your partner's interests no longer align. So a well-written agreement will also describe what terminating an interest looks like. So transitioning to what is fair concept into an S-Corp agreement also should be discussed. In a partnership, there's more flexibility despite the ownership interest on how to allocate profits and losses. For example, one partner may agree to a 5% interest share with the intent of transforming the business to be profitable. Until that time, though, that person and the other partner agree that the 5% member may take 100% of the losses to offset other pass-through interests. It's not that they're getting something for free but rather the strategy they are using is maximizing personal tax savings and investing that capital, the tax savings capital, back into the partnership that they want to turn around. Flexibility in the partnership agreement allows them to do that. Whereas in an S-Corp, you can adjust the W-2 salary of a shareholder, which is also the name for a former member, but all distributions and contributions from the equity side must be prorated according to their ownership interests. If you distribute not accordingly, then the IRS deems you violated your S-Corp election by issuing a different class of stock. Yes, you have one class of stock with an S-Corporation. A good accountant will help you fix this balance sheet issue at year end and offer other options. However, if you're worried about being fair with ownership interest flexibility, meaning the distributions of profits are not bound by your ownership interest, then I think working with an attorney to draft a stronger partnership agreement and working with a tax advisor is a better option served, especially in light of your other income sources. Another thing to consider is reasonable wage and setting up payroll, which is required for the shareholders of the S-Corporation. Really, for many partnerships, the only thing new in the S-Corp is a slightly different chart of accounts and then the added payroll costs and setup and processing. 
If you've already set up your payroll for other employees, then this won't make much of a difference. However, there is added time and expense in merely setting up the payroll, depending on the state, and then properly running payroll for the active shareholders. Why do you have to run W-2 payroll for the shareholders? Because you agreed to when you signed your Form 2553 when you made that S-Corp election. Tax court cases have set precedents in deciding what reasonable compensation should look like. Factors like type of services rendered, qualifications and prior earning capacity in a similar outside role, and prevailing compensation paid to employees with comparable jobs are just a few of the considerations. If you're concerned on whether you have the proper documentation to support your reasonable wage calculation, then you should find a tax accountant that can help you determine what that is. Reasonable compensation is a very important component of being an S-Corp, and the IRS has already established the Compliance Initiative Project, also called CIP, that works to correct non-compliance outside of the traditional audit process. There is a back-end algorithm side of the of scoring an S-corporation, so it's not a luck-of-a-draw process of being examined anymore. Basically, the IRS can send you a letter and request this documentation on how you came up with the reasonable wage. Also, another thing to consider is what kind of partnership do you currently have? Is it service-oriented? Is it a real estate holding company? Are there subsidiaries? The type of business is important as S-corporations have other restrictions, such as a 100-shareholder limit, and a rule that corporations and partnerships cannot be shareholders. Real property and contributed property can also pose some issues due to the rules on gain recognition for appreciated property or step-up basis consideration in the partnership versus stock ownership in the S-Corp. So again, you should consult with your tax advisor before making the switch. So by now you've heard the IRS just got an $80 billion budget increase under the Inflation Reduction Act, and I know you all have been eagerly awaiting who will be named the next IRS commissioner. President Biden has selected Daniel Werfel to be the next IRS commissioner, who now must be approved by the Senate before starting his five-year term. I'd like to think that this is a politically neutral position where the American public is spared from the Senate theatrics, but I doubt that will be true. If his nomination passes, we can at least start seeing the leadership direction and focus of the IRS and where it will go. I have a few things I wanted to consider about the role of the IRS commissioner and his background. The role of the IRS commissioner is to carry out the mission of the IRS in helping taxpayers meet their responsibilities by being the bridge between the tax law and the citizen taxpayer. Mr. Werfel's experience includes the U.S. Government Accountability Office. He was a controller for the White House Office of Management and Budget, which is like the CFO of the U.S. government. He also spent two years as a trial attorney in the Department of Justice and worked in the private sector as a consultant for government organizations. Mr. Werfel was also a temporary IRS commissioner for seven months in 2013 after Mr. Miller was fired for improperly targeting conservative-leaning nonprofit groups. So he does have a glimpse of what that leadership looks like and responsibility, which is more than most in hey, he's 10 years the wiser, so we can do nothing but hope he carries out the mission of the IRS impartially and fairly. There are mixed feelings that I have to see the IRS budget and enforcement expand so exponentially, especially when the discussion of creating a better tax system is not a priority for most members of Congress. As a practitioner, I can agree that an underfunded and poorly managed IRS is frustrating as I help clients answer tax letters and unprocessed returns. I am eager to see better customer service and electronic tools at our disposal so that we can expeditiously resolve those issues. 
As a taxpayer, though, I have a level of caution when Congress declares that those issues could be resolved by simply increasing the budget and personnel. Consider this. The IRS has been slated 87,000 new employees. Currently, they stand at 79,000 approximately with 50,000 who are close to retirement. So basically, a net 37,000 estimated additional jobs over the next 10 years in the IRS. And if $46 billion has been dedicated to enforcement, which is over half given in the Inflation Reduction Act, then it could be reasonable that the majority of the new jobs are going to be attributed to the enforcement division of the IRS. Even when a taxpayer does everything right, the mere correspondence activities can be timely even when you don't hire a tax advisor to assist. So again, I hope that resources are used wisely, judiciously, but there are many open-ended activities that the IRS could pursue. Consider how the word enforcement is defined inside of the text of the Inflation Reduction Act. They say, quote, enforcement for necessary expenses for tax enforcement activities of the IRS to determine and collect owed taxes, to provide legal and litigation support to conduct criminal investigations, including investigative technology, to provide digital asset monitoring and compliance activities, to enforce criminal statutes related to violations of the IR internal revenue laws and other financial crimes, to pursue and hire passenger motor vehicles and to provide other services at such rates as may be determined by the commissioner. So you can see why there might be some caution in terms of the IRS expansion. So the next commissioner will lead the IRS and its spending activities with over half dedicated to the enforcement activities. I do think there will be an increase in overall audit rates despite assurances from some of the media sources Looking at the potential revenue estimates from the CBO, new IRS personnel competency and the Treasury Secretary's comments, and the fact that the Senate did not amend the legislation before approving when given the opportunity, making me believe that some of the income tax brackets will not be spared uh, from audits. Janet Yellen, who I mentioned the Treasury Secretary comments, she said on August 10th of 2022, any additional resources, including any new personnel or auditors that are hired, shall not be used to increase the share of small business or households below 400000 threshold that are audited relative to historic levels. You can see how that phrasing is pretty open-ended. This doesn't mean they can't use existing resources and reallocate. She specifically uses the words increase the share relative to historic levels. The U.S. Government Accountability Office released in May of 18, 2022, their report on audit rate by saying, from fiscal years 2010 to 2021, the majority of the IRS taxes IRS recommended from audits came from taxpayers with income below 200000 However, the additional taxes recommend per audit increase as taxpayer income increased. Over this time, the average number of hours spent per audit was generally stable for lower income taxpayers, but more than doubled for those with $200,000 and above. So higher incomes, complexity, time spent, and tax liability all have a positive relationship, and the IRS commissioner knows this. And so he will have the job of determining which resources will be used to collect against which category of income earners and evaluate where the investment dollars should be put. 
Lastly, let's quickly look at Social Security and its current state of solvency and purview of reform and why this could be a great bipartisan effort in the upcoming Congress. We often cynically comment that the program simply won't be there when we need it, yet we're required to pay into it our whole working lives. Feels like a pretty bad return on investment, which of course it is. Hopeful critics often say it will be there, but there will be stricter limitations, like looking at asset status, income limitations, and even much older limits to enter the program. So the question is, can anything be done to improve the future outlook? On June 2nd of this year, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget released their analysis of the 2022 Social Security Trustees Report, saying that Social Security is only 13 years away from insolvency says they will exhaust the reserves by 2035 when today's 54-year-olds reach the full retirement age and today's youngest retirees turn 75. Upon insolvency, all beneficiaries will face a 20% across-the-board benefit cut. Social Security faces large and rising imbalances in which annual deficits will grow 3.4% of payroll, which is 1.2% of GDP by 2040. That's not too far away. And then it will grow to 4.3% of payroll, which is 1.4% of GDP by 2096. They say that policymakers have only a few years left to restore the solvency to the program. And the longer they wait, the larger and more costly the necessary adjustments will be. Keep in mind, government accounting is a federal trust fund, which is an accounting mechanism in which the government allocates certain tax revenues that is dedicated to specific funding like Social Security. So when a trust fund becomes insolvent, the program can only spend as much as what flows in from current revenues from the current year. This could mean immediate and large cuts of benefit payments or potentially requiring tax increases to fund the trust. Some of the suggestions put forth to achieve solvency include reducing benefits by a percentage, slow the initial benefit growth to top earners, increase retirement age, and then index to longevity, modify the cost of a living adjustments indexed to chain CPI or a means test, make all wages subject to payroll tax, which currently in 2022, up to $147,000 of Social Security wages are taxed for Social Security. This will also go up next year in 2023 to $160,200. So we're seeing close to a 10% increase already in 2023. They also suggest tightening the eligibility criteria, including limited spousal benefits for high earners, and then a means test benefits for high earners. So there's no other solution to achieve solvency but to address Social Security solvency issues with the suggestions that I mentioned. They're going to have to cut or slow benefit increases, look at raising more tax revenues, and possibly do a combination of both. The benefit of a bipartisan reform is to prevent steep and sudden cuts that could hurt those who rely on Social Security the most. By addressing the solvency issue now, this could boost retirement income for those in need, promote work and investment that contributes to GDP, and then reduce overall waste in the Social Security program. Thanks again for listening today, and you can find the links in the show notes below to reference any of the topics that I discussed today. Thanks to the many tax professionals and publications out there that spend a lot of their time explaining these tax issues and some of the new items coming up. 
please hit subscribe and send me your feedback for future episodes. You can either leave me a comment in the comment section or email me with the email address below. Thanks again.